Well, we're kind of drawing towards the end of our Sunday morning teaching series called The Uncommon Community, based in our study of First John. And what we've been saying all the way through this series is that John seems to be writing to a church that have gone through a rather turbulent, tumultuous last little while. And he's writing to this church and saying, right, in, in, in the wake of this, as the dust settles, as you begin to find your feet, here's what you need to learn. No, let me bring you back to square one. Let me give you that rooting again. So what we've seen as we've been reading this John, and studying this, John is saying, right, here's how you love each other. Here's how you demonstrate that um, God-sourced kind of love. And, and, and here's, how you, here's how you follow God. Here's how you obey him. How, here's how you walk in his ways. And oh, and this is who Jesus really is. Don't depart from that truth. You need to be rooted right here. So it's in the wake of a really hard, tough last little while. I, I don't know, when you were a kid, maybe you loved fun fairs like I did. And when I went to fun fairs, I always felt like it was, you had to kind of go through like graduations of different rides at fun fairs. So when you were really small, you might have just managed the merry-go-round. You know, when you sit on one of the, those horses and it goes up and down, you go round and round. That's quite exciting when you're really small. And then you graduate to the helter-skelter. So you go up really high and then that can get quite fast towards the end. That's good. But you know you've really made it at fun fair when you get to go on the dodgems. The dodgems are, they're it. Well, as far as I'm concerned, they're it. That, that's the pinnacle of a fun fair. And so when I was a kid, I always used to approach the dodgems with a strategy. You get in and, right, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to hit people as hard as I can. But the way I'm going to do that is by taking, like, a, I have to kind of have, know the spaces where I need to go and then kind of go out to the side when there's, where there's no dormant cars and then come in and then whack the people in the middle who have no idea what they're doing. And then what, what, you, what you found was on the dodgems is that some people would go in with no strategy whatsoever. And that no strategy, these are the people who are going to come out terribly. Because all they do, they kind of go around in circles in the middle, waltzing around, and everybody else saw this as an opportunity to just smash them to pieces. And so these people, without a strategy, would just get bumped backwards and forth, side to side, left to right, and they would kind of get up at the end of the dodgems, and they kind of stagger around, really disorientated, and it really wasn't a fun thing at all. And they just kind of, that was hard work, we've been pushed back and forth, now we need to find our feet again and figure out who we are and what we're doing with the rest of the day. It was kind of like John's situation right here. He's writing into a situation, we think it's churches, small house churches, who have gone through this turbulence. They've been bumped back and forth, side to side. This has been so hard for them as they're kind of disorientated, trying to find their feet again, trying to figure out who they are and what they're supposed to be doing as Christians in this context. John's like, right, let me show you what's what. And in the passage we're going to be studying this morning, what we're going to see it's a really difficult few verses, but very simply, John is going to say, let me show you where to find life. I mean, this is a church, churches that have been pummeled with all kinds of different claims of where to find life. They've ever had people coming left, right, front and back saying, this is where you find life. This is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus is about. Here's where you find life, vitality, satisfaction. Come and follow us. We know where life is found. And John seems to write into that and says, no, this is where life is. I'll show you where you can have real life. That real kind of vital, soul-satisfying kind of life. I'll show you where to find that contentment. It can be found somewhere. 
Now, that's not too dissimilar where we are. Because our generation, our society, and our world is exactly like the generations and societies that have gone before us. In that, we face many different claims on where to find life. And that's always been the case in every generation. There's always different voices that say, if you come here and have this, if you do this, if you are this, then you will find that vitality. Then you will find that hope. Here you will find that contentment and that satisfaction that your heart is just longing for. I mean, take, for example, you walk through the butter market in Bury St. Edmunds. You're going to walk past a shop, and there's going to be a massive storefront window right there, and there's going to be a big, big poster, I'm guessing, on one of these shops. And and there's going to be, uh, on this poster, a photo of a person or a group of people or a family, and they're going to look ridiculously and annoyingly happy. They're going to be perfect teeth, perfect hair, incredibly attractive, and they're going to be exhibiting the product that this shop wants you to buy. Now, when you look at that poster, there's an implicit message at play. There's an underweaving message, and it says, you know what, if you have that product, if you have our thing that we're trying to sell, you will have the kind of life and vitality that these people have. So if you buy our product, you have this material thing, you will have that life. You, will, you see how contented and, and how much these people have it together? You will be like that if you have this. That we, can, we can open magazines, we can open our newspapers, we turn on the TV, we engage with social media, and the messages are there. They're all implicitly and underweaving and underlying, but it's really simple. If you achieve this, if you become this, if you have these kinds of friends, if you have that kind of house, if you have that kind of car, if you're that popular, if you have that kind of an IQ and intelligence, if you have that kind of a job, if you have that kind of a spouse, if you have this, this kind of kids, you will find life, you will find vitality. So we live in an age, just like all of the others that have gone before us, that present us with many, many different claims on where to find life. John's audience are in exactly the same place. Now, the claims are going to be different, but it's still the same thing. John's saying, I'll show you where to find life. There's a very simple question we need to ask this morning then. Is then, all right, John, where do we find this life? Where is that life? Where does it come from? Where can we find it? So when we grab our Bibles, let's have these open. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 5, and we're kicking off in verse 6. So you can get these black hardback Bibles on the ends of the pews. You can open those up. You can get it open on your Bibles, on your phone. Uh, but I want to kind of work through this together bit by bit. So that's 1 John chapter 5, and we're starting in verse 6. Now, just a little disclaimer before I read this. <laughs> this is really confusing. I've been sweating and wrestling with this all week. And you're going to see why when we read through this. There are some terms you just kind of think, what does John mean by this? I actually think it's quite a simple point in the end. But as we read through this, let's look out for the word testimony or testify. In your Bibles, it might say witness. And then let's think through what John actually says about life and where this life can be found. So I'm going to read through this, verse 6 to verse 12. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify. The Spirit and the water, and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony that God 
of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe that God, believe God, whoever does not believe, God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son, verse 11. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son, verse 12. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. I'm sure as we're reading that together, you're kind of thinking, what on earth is that first little bit? That's really interesting. I wonder what you're going to do with that, James. Some of you are probably licking your lips, wondering what I'm going to do with that. But, but he, he, he starts off by saying, right, we've got these witnesses, the water, the blood, the spirit. These witnesses agree. Verse 10, he seems to raise the stakes a little bit and then gives the game away in verse 11. But these first three verses, well... We need to understand those in order to understand where John goes with the rest of it. So what on earth is this water, blood, and spirit business about? What are these witnesses? How are they testifying or witnessing to the testimony? And what's that testimony? Here's a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the most famous preachers of the 20th century. Now, (laughs) I love this. Now, there can be no question at all that these three verses are not only the most difficult verses in this epistle, but I think that they are the three most difficult verses, in a sense, in the entire Bible. Now, as we look across church history, there are uh, manifold, loads of different views on what this actually means. So what I've tried to do is kind of condense the main ideas together, or the main views on what the water, the blood, and the spirit actually are, and then we'll work our way through these to try and figure out what John actually means. So why don't we throw up these five main views that we find throughout church history, kind of consider this. Now, all of these views agree that when John says the Spirit, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. The question surrounds, what does he mean by the water and the blood? If we could get that, we'd see where he's headed. So the the first view, the Roman spear. Now, some of you might, might remember this, that at Jesus' crucifixion, there's a Roman soldier who, who jabs the spear under Jesus' ribs. And John makes clear, or he, he's, he's, he's really keen to tell us, that it's water and blood that came from Jesus' side. John seems to emphasize that more than the other gospel writers. So one of the theories is that it's water and blood from the Roman spear. So the Roman spear then would testify that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, Maybe, but John seems to say right here, Jesus came by water and blood. Or your translation, I think, more accurately might say, came through water and the blood. And if he was talking about that, would he use those words? Okay, what about the second view? This is, the second view was held by Martin Luther. This is uh, baptism and communion. Do you know when someone is baptized, they're, they're dunked under the water and they're brought up, and this is, this is a public proclamation of faith that they are united to Jesus. So Martin Luther would say, right, the water refers to baptism, and the blood refers to communion. And these two things, these two things that, that Jesus gave the church to do, these things testify to who he is. So when someone's baptized, that shows us who Jesus is, and when we take communion, that shows us who we are in Jesus. So these testify. I'm not sure about that view. Water, yes, I could get, but blood, communion, and, and the Lord's Supper isn't really referred to as blood in the New Testament, so I don't know about that. Okay, what about view three, Old Testament sacrifices? John Calvin and Charles Spurgeon held this view. 
And so what they would say was look back to the sacrificial system. So when you go back to the Old Testament, we see the Israelite people offering sacrifice, or the priests offering sacrifices on behalf of the people to atone for the sins. And in the procedure of, of, of offering sacrifices, the priests would have a ceremonial cleansing with water. They would make sure they themselves are washed and clean, and then they would offer the sacrifices. So there's the water in the priests and the purification process, and then there's the sacrifices, which is the blood. So, so Calvin would say, right, okay, the blood and the water that John is talking about, he's talking about the Old Testament sacrificial system, which was pointing to Jesus as the full and final fulfillment of that. Jesus was the full and final sacrifice. That's pointing to him. Okay, we could weigh that one. That's an interesting view. The fourth view here, Jesus' birth. Uh, this, is, I guess, is the simplest one of the, 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 the lot. Um, in I'm not going to go into too much detail. You know the birthing process of a human being? There is both water and blood. So what, 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 what fourth view is, they, they look at this and say, well, Jesus, this is proving Jesus is human. He's fully human because he was born as a human. So when he took on human flesh and, and, was, uh, and was born and came into our world, it was by the water and the blood. Okay. And the last view, okay, uh, the baptism and death of Jesus. So at the baptism, Jesus is baptized, and we have the confirmation from heaven, this is my son, and his death, this shows us who Jesus really was. Now the big question is, for us, what are we going to do with all of this? Because if we could kind of pick apart this a little bit, we could understand where John is headed. Well, I'm going to side with view five. Tentatively so, but I'm going to side with view five, and I'll tell you why. You try and follow me with this. As we've been studying John... What we've seen is that John is at pains to show us who Jesus really is. So there appears to be a bunch of people who've come into this church or churches and have said, we've got this new idea of who Jesus is. Uh, uh, It's different from what you've always said, but this is who he is, so follow us. So what we've seen through this is that John is hammering away. No, Jesus is fully God and fully man. You don't depart from those truths, and as soon as you do, there is no good news for us. And so here's what we have, is that John is writing to this situation. Now, one of the conclusions we've made throughout this series is to say, this group of people who's teaching a wrong idea of Jesus is a bunch of people we would call the Gnostics. That's Gnostics with a G. You remember, and what we've, just a quick review here, because it's important. The Gnostics were a group of people well, it's a philosophy, Gnosticism of philosophy. These are a group of people who say that the stuff you can't see is good. That's the stuff you need to aim for. So, so our, our thoughts, spirituality, uh, things, the immaterial world is good. And everything physical, everything material, so our bodies to stuff, this uh, paper, wood, everything, rock, whatever, that stuff is bad or evil, inconsequential. So the Gnostics would say, stuff you can't see is good, stuff you do see and can touch is bad. So what happens is this, this, this philosophy then comes into the church and kind of gets wrapped up with ideas of Jesus. And so the Gnostic Christians say, all right then, uh, if Jesus actually stepped into our world and stuff is bad, he could never have taken on a human body. Jesus only seemed like he's human. He wasn't fully human. So the Gnostics came in and said, right, he wasn't fully God and he wasn't fully human. 
Now, what's John been saying all the way through? We need to confess that Jesus, the Son of God, came in the flesh. He's, I don't know how many times he's said that. Jesus came in the flesh. So John seems to be pushing against this Gnostic kind of Christianity that says, Jesus only seemed human in the way that a ghost seems human. That's what Jesus was like. Now, we're going to take this a step further here, so track with me. The history books show us there was one Gnostic guy who stirred things even more. His name was Serinthus. And Serinthus was writing and speaking and teaching round about this time. And Serinthus used to go around saying, right, took Gnosticism a bit further. He said, right, the Christ was just a spirit and Jesus was a human being. And Serinthus would say, right, at Jesus' baptism, the human that was Jesus was taken over by the spirit that was Christ. And so at that moment, we have Jesus Christ. And then Serinthus would say, throughout Jesus' ministry, you have the human Jesus filled with the spirit that is Christ. And then at Jesus' death, the spirit of Christ leaves, leaving the human Jesus. So Serinthus would say it's a spirit that just embodied this guy called Jesus, or took this guy called Jesus, and then left. Therefore, this Christ spirit remained untouched and undefiled by material things. So then, think about that. If Serinthus is bringing into question Jesus' baptism... And bringing into question Jesus' death, John writes into that and says, no, no, Jesus is fully God and fully man. Jesus' baptism shows us that. The baptism isn't the Spirit of Christ descending. It's the Father and the Spirit verifying who Jesus is. This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. And the death of Jesus, well, that shows us who Jesus really is. He's fully human and he's fully God. If he's not those two things simultaneously and fully all the time, then there is no salvation for us. If Jesus is not fully God, only God can save. There is no salvation. If Jesus is not fully man, then we can't be healed because Jesus heals what he takes to himself. We can't be healed. So it seems as though right here, the Serinthus messing around with ideas of Jesus and John is saying, right, no, Jesus, the water testifies. Jesus' baptism shows us. Jesus' death shows us. And the testimony of the Holy Spirit shows us. And what does he say? These three testify. These three agree. So it seems, seems quite simple there, actually, in, in the end, I think, with view five. It kind of makes sense to me. But we've got to ask the question, right? John's now set up this kind of courtroom situation. He's shown us the witnesses, the baptism, the death of Jesus, and the Spirit. He sets up this courtroom situation. But we need to ask the question, then, what is this testimony. What are they testifying to? What are these witnesses? What are these witnesses showing us? Well, John gives the game away throughout the rest of this passage. Let's reread verse ten down to verse twelve. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. So that's where John seems to raise the stakes. Verse eleven. Here we go, he gives it away. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So let's track the logic right here. John's given us the witnesses. These three all agree. What do they agree? Well, before we get there, verse 10, let's raise the stakes a little bit. What does he say? Well, if you believe the testimony that we gave you from the beginning, then this testimony is within you. But if you don't believe that testimony, then he's just saying, do the logic. You would be calling God a liar. That's what you're left with. 
Then he shows us, verse 11, this testimony is right there that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. So what does it mean to have life? What does it mean to have this eternal life? What does, what does that mean? Well, it seems as though John is just very simply reinforcing what he's been saying so far. To have life, to have eternal life, is to have Jesus Christ himself. It's to have all of the blessings that Jesus Christ has earned himself. And by his grace, we are lavished with that kind of a hope, with that kind of an acceptance, with that kind of a life, with that kind of a vitality, with that kind of assurance. That's what it means to have life and life in abundance. What does Jesus say in John's gospel? I have come that they might have life. That's where we find the life. It seems like a courtroom scenario. Any of you have seen uh, the film Hook? I'm sure all of us have seen. And there's that famous, famous part in, in Hook where, played by Robin Williams, Peter Pan, he's, if you don't know the film, he forgets that he was Peter Pan. He comes back to normal life and then goes back to Never Neverland a few decades later. And everybody's trying to convince him that he's Peter Pan and he just doesn't get it. But then he remembers, I think it's his little Teddy that gets him to remember. And then he's flying around and he, he lands within the Lost Boys camp. And then he draws this line in the sand and all of the lost boys come over and then you have Rufio who was like the stand-in head of the lost boys holds over his sword and says that famous line, you are the pan. So, so there's, there's these witnesses surrounding. Yeah, yeah, you, you are. Yeah, you are. We know this. So it seems as though John sets up some similar thing right here. He's like, right, these witnesses are right here. We've got the water, the blood, and the spirit. They testify. If you have the son, the testimony's in you. If you don't do the logic, God must be a liar. What's this testimony then? That in the Son we have life. So so get this, really simple, what John is saying. God has spoken. God has already said. God has had the last word. The witnesses agree that in Jesus we have life. I've got to say that again. God has spoken. The witnesses agree that in Jesus there is life. One more time. God has spoken. The witnesses agree. And in Jesus, there is life. So the question we asked at the beginning was, where is life? Where is this kind of eternal life? Where's that vitality? Where is, where is that to be found? John says it's in Jesus. The witnesses testify. And you're sitting there thinking, oh, okay, I've heard that before. <laughs> Isn't that what Christians believe? Isn't that what we teach Sunday school, little soldiers, crash, teen searchers, don't, don't, we, don't we teach them that very simple elementary truth that this kind of life, this eternal life, this vitality that we get to live into now, don't we tell them that? That seems pretty simple, John. But here's the thing, it is incredibly simple. But most of the time, we miss the implications that are loaded with that truth. That is a simple truth that eternal life is found in Jesus. It's a simple truth to say that we live into that eternal life that Jesus gives us now. But it is a whole nother thing to understand the implications that flow from that. The implications and the consequences that come from that truth. It's easy to say Jesus is the one in whom we find eternal life. It is a whole different ballgame to live into that reality. But I want to bring this passage down to earth just a little bit more for us this morning. Try and bring that truth into our lives in 21st century Suffolk. And I want to do that in three simple ways. So let's just have a look at the first way. 
I think this passage meets us. Now remember what we've said. God has spoken and the witnesses agree. In Jesus we have life. You know what that means then? This is what it means for us. No claim to spirituality then that tears apart what God has already said is legitimate. Let me try and explain that a little bit. No claim to spirituality. No claim to who Jesus is. No claim to what that means to our lives. If that goes ahead and tears apart what God has already said, it can't stand. That's what John seems to be writing to. He's writing to this church that are just, they're just hurting. They're, like they've been on the dodgems. They're trying to find their feet again. They're trying to figure out who they are. And John says, right. You've had all these different claims to life. Let me show you the claim to life. God has already spoken. You don't need to manipulate that truth. You don't need to change it. You don't need to alter it. You don't need to compromise it to suit your needs. God has already spoken. And he's given us a testimony. He's shown us that in, in Jesus Christ, we have that life. Now, often we see this happen. We see this kind of stuff happen in obvious ways, I guess. When Pete, you know, come across someone who'd said, you know, I just think God is fill in the blank. I just think God would fill in the blank. I think God should. I think God is like fill in the blank. Now, that's pretty obvious because what's happening there is that people are kind of taking what God has already said, discarding it, tearing it apart, and just kind of speculating and concocting their own ideas. So that kind of stuff can't stand. But we often do this in our own hearts. And I'll speak for myself. I know in my own heart, I can subconsciously mess with who I think God is to justify how I want to live my life. I mean, it's what the Gnostics were doing. Gnostics were saying, I want to live my life however I want. So if I just mess with my idea of Jesus, I can have permission to do what I want. It works like this. You know, when, when I covet after something, something someone has, what is it? I've, I've decided in my head that Jesus isn't sufficient. It's coming from my wrong idea of Jesus. When I'm proud and I want to be number one, or I want to be ahead of someone. Why is that? It's because I want to be the king of my life, not Jesus. So we know we need to be careful of tampering with ideas of who we think Jesus is, who God is, and not tearing apart what God has already said. So these kinds of stuff can't stand. What about the second way I think this meets us in our everyday lives? Nothing is more important to you than what God has said in Jesus. This is, this is real simple. This is, this is about doing the logic. If Jesus is the place where we find life, if Jesus is the means by which we have eternal life, if Jesus is the very place we were created, the very person we were created to worship, to be united to, to love, to find contentment from, if that's true about Jesus, then, whether we like it or not, the testimony of Jesus is the most important thing to us. We need to do the logic there. C.S. Lewis once said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. If true, of ultimate importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. He's encouraging us to do the logic. There's a famous interview that happened a few decades ago. And it was Larry King and Mortimer Adler. And it was in the wake of a massive, massive publication from Encyclopedia Britannica. So there was this giant several-volume set that was published in the 50s. And Mortimer Adler was the editor-in-chief. And so he was being interviewed after this huge publication. It was celebrated. And a massive part of this publication was called the Syntopicon. 
And in the, in the Syntopican, uh, you, you, could, you could read about just, a, just about anything you could imagine. It would be in there. There would be an essay on that, and there would be a list of extra reading and references you could go to. Now, Mortimer Adler, who's compiled all of this, is then on Larry King's interview. And Larry King had looked through this big encyclopedia in the Syntopicon, and Larry King asked him a question. He says, look, I've read through this, I've flicked through, and what I've noticed is that the, the article that gets given the most page space is about God. Yeah, it was. He says, well, why? Why is that? Mortimer Adler gives an answer that absolutely floors Larry King. He says, well, we realize that more consequences flow from your life than that topic than any other topic we could think of. So what's Mortimer Adler doing? Larry King was stunned, didn't know what to say. Yeah, I suppose you're right. Doing the logic. If Jesus is who he says he is, if he is the means by which we have this life, then we do that logic. Jesus is the most important thing to us. Last week, I was, uh, most of you thought I was still not very well from the week before, but I was actually preaching at a church in uh, the north of Suffolk in Fressingfield. And it's only about four miles away from where my grandparents used to live. So I thought, I know what I'm going to do. I was preaching both morning and evening. I thought, in the afternoon, I'm going to take a drive down memory lane. And I'm going to go visit my grandparents' old house. I'm going to go visit their grave. I'm going to go somewhere down, somewhere down the streets and the lanes we used to go down together. And so I went to Grandma and Granddad's house. And I was just kind of reminiscing, got all emotional. I'm like, wow, this is five and a half years ago. It still hurts. And just looking through all of those wonderful memories and just praising the Lord. But I remembered when we were living in Chicago, my granddad and I would try and talk once a week or so, but we'd still communicate over letter. And through the letters, you would get a little bit more of where granddad really was. But stuff that he didn't feel comfortable saying on the phone. So he'd ask questions like, do you really believe in the resurrection, James? Yes, granddad, yes. I have to believe in the resurrection. It's true. If that didn't happen, my faith is pointless. Well, James, if, if Jesus really is the resurrected Son of God, then, then isn't that the most important thing to us? You've still got the letter somewhere at home. Isn't that then the most important thing to us, if that's true? I think what John would want us to do right here is to do the logic. God has spoken. This is who Jesus is. Do the logic. He therefore must be the most important thing to us. So what are we left with? The last thing where we are headed this morning. How does this meet us? Very simply, go to Jesus then. If that's who he is, and if the witnesses agree, and John has raised the stakes here, then we go to Jesus. We live in a world where there are many different claims to life. John's audience lived in a world where there were different claims to life. Here's where you find satisfaction. Here's where you'll be set free. Here's where your heart will find the rest that it so desperately craves. Here's where the acceptance is going to be found. Here's where you'll be loved. Here's where you won't be turned away. I mean, the world is just full of that kind of stuff. But John says, no. Jesus is the place where we find life. So we run to him. We give our lives to him, recognizing that he is the flesh and blood God who stepped into our world, walked through the gutter of humanity, looked face to he was face to face, eyeball to eyeball, with the mess that this world has to offer. He didn't screw up like we do. We always mess up at every turn, but Jesus got it right. He lived the perfect life, and we know at the end of his life, the, the, the cross testifies. The cross is a witness that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, gave himself up so that we might go free. 
But the story doesn't end there, does it? It gets better. On the third day, he rose again from the dead so that we could have new life and have life in abundance. Jesus is where we find life. Let's pray and then we get to sing our last song together. Join me as we pray. Lord, we are so grateful for your word and how it speaks into our lives in a real way. Lord, we we pray where we feel weary and discouraged, Lord, um, revive us afresh. Help us to see that we can find that vitality, that eternal life that we can live into right now. That acceptance, that love, that rest is found in Jesus. Help us to see that. And by your spirit, strengthen us to keep running over and over again to the source and the sustenance of our lives. And that's Jesus. We ask you your strength. Help us to digest it. Help us to know it. Help us to live it. We're praying in Jesus' name. Amen.